Blessed be God. If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, please turn with me now to Matthew chapter 6. Continuing on the Mount series um, on this third Sunday of Lent, we're going to be in verses 9 through 15. 9 through 15. Um, friends, I must confess, I had um, a hard time this morning's sermon. Um, I've been preparing for the last two weeks or so. I diagrammed the text, I outlined, I've done research, and I was drafting. Um, but as you know, the Lord's Prayer is so rich and theologically dense with these glorious truths, it can be a series on its own, right? Uh, a sermon for each of the six petitions. And as I was approaching almost 10,000 words in <laughs> my first draft, I was at a loss for how to distill all of these glorious truths into a 30-35 minute sermon instead of a three-hour lecture. And um, then on Thursday of this last week, my mom called me, and I had a breakthrough. And uh, we talked about a bunch of stuff, and then she told me about um, a recent trip that her and my dad uh, were on to LA. And she told me about a brother in the Lord who had co-labored with them in New York, um, but was now in, in L.A., and how he took great care of them, how he was so hospitable, it took them around to all the sightseeing and everything. It was just a paragon of hospitality. Mind you, this same man was one who had left the church uh, that my dad pastored with acrimony, and he had slandered and just levied all kinds of calumny against my dad, um, and it was a time of deep hurt, uh, real hurt uh, to my parents, to the church, and I hurt for them as well. Um, but here we are, 10 years later, and my parents had forgiven him, but my dad lamented that he didn't know whether his sons, or even if or when, we would forgive the same man. And when my mom told me that my heart was cut to the quick and the Holy Spirit immediately directed me to verse 12 and verse 14 and 15 of our passage this morning because dad was right. I had not forgiven this man and the Lord laid bare before me my sin and I was convicted then and there and I reached out to him. I messaged him. I took a, a break from my social media fast and went on Facebook and messaged him and told him you know, about the herd and that I need to practice what I preach, literally, and um, that I forgive him. And perhaps, maybe, someone out there is like me this morning. Maybe you've been nursing some hurts. Maybe someone in the church has hurt you. And yes, there is no hurt like church hurt. And maybe this hurt has turned into bile within you. But friends, I come this morning with a message of freedom. It is time to lay down your burdens. It is time to let go of your hurts. There is no better time than now, during this season of Lent, as we sorrow over our sin and look to the forgiveness that has been won for us on the cross of Calvary. 
that we should also now forgive as our Heavenly Father has forgiven us. Friends, there is freedom in forgiveness. Let us pray. Pray with me now the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, before we get to the focus of our discourse in the text this morning, I want us to take a minute to consider the context of the Lord's Prayer, both the extended and immediate context. The extended context, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been discussing these past two months. We last left off from Pastor Taylor's sermons at the fulcrum of the entire sermon, wherein Jesus calls his followers to pursue a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. It is the righteousness demanded for citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the immediate context of the Lord's Prayer is Jesus' teaching on prayer. He has already spoken about charitable giving. He will speak on fasting, but here he speaks on prayer. Now, continuing this point about the righteousness needed for citizenship in God's kingdom, Jesus exposes and condemns the way hypocrites approach God in prayer. For instance, in verse 7 of chapter 6, he criticizes spiritual pretenders for repeating empty phrases and calling it prayer, as if piling on words will get God's attention. Then in verse 8, Jesus instead instructs, instructs us, do not be like them. Why? For your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Jesus teaches us that we should not pray as if we're asking a total stranger to grant us a big favor. We should pray as secure children coming to their loving father. Our father in heaven. Pray recognizing the divine paternity of God. I think you missed that. That's heavy, y'all. And I could preach a whole sermon on the divine paternity of God. In fact, I almost did, but ain't nobody got time for that. So I'm going <laughs> to give you a broad outline of this model prayer and then get to the focus of our text. So <laughs> after the opening invocation, our Father, we see six petitions in the prayer. The first three concerns God and addresses him directly. Your name, your kingdom and rule, and your will. See, the Christian's primary concerns, therefore, are that God's name be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the next three petitions have to do with man directly, our daily food, our sins or debts, and our temptations. It focuses on us or our. Again, these petitions address our need for sustenance, forgiveness, and deliverance. But this transition from your to our doesn't suggest that we come before God's throne to address his priorities, and then God, as it were, changes places with us to address our priorities. This model prayer instead is tailored to teach us 
how to approach God in prayer. Because in all of these petitions, God occupies the place of priority. When we pray about God's name, kingdom, and will, we are expressing our devotion to God. And when we pray for sustenance, forgiveness, and deliverance, we are expressing our dependence on God. See, the model prayer teaches us to make God's priorities our priorities. But in the process, guess what? We learn that we are one of God's priorities. Because even as we focus on ourselves in prayer, the Lord still sets the agenda. And it seems to me that one thing that is on God's agenda, but has been missing from the church's agenda these days, is forgiveness. In a culture that is so quick to cancel anyone, that deviates from the accepted cultural orthodoxy, in a culture where any slight offense or misspoken word or opposing worldview is a one-way ticket to being a social pariah, we need to be reminded in this culture that none of us are perfect and all of us need grace. It grieves me, it grieves me that this culture of retribution has infected the church also, where any attempt at correction or discipline by the elders is rejected, where an ignorant brother or sister is mercilessly shamed, where if the pastor doesn't always preach about the latest current event that weighs on your heart, must mean he doesn't care about you or about your people. Friends, it should not be so in the community of God. And hear me well, please. I'm not trying to minimize the real hurts and the wounds and offense that are caused by fellow brothers and sisters and even by our leaders. But before we cancel each other, before we leave the church, before we spread calumny about each other, have we prayed for the grace of forgiveness? Truly, there is no hurt like church hurt. I myself have been deeply wounded in the church. I still carry the scars on my heart and in my soul, but I have found that the burden of malice and bitterness and unforgiveness is too heavy to bear. Friends, you were not made to bear such a heavy load. And Jesus is calling you today to exchange your heavy burden for his light one. Your hard yoke for his easy one. He's calling you to find freedom in forgiveness. And so Jesus teaches us to pray and forgive us our debts as we also are forgiven our debtors. Now, the first word of this fifth petition in the model prayer is the conjunction and. Conjunction, junction. Exactly. The and here connects verse 11 to verse 12. And in verse 11, Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Then Jesus connects the request for bread to this request for forgiveness. How do the two go together? I think the connection is this. There are both fundamental needs of human existence. Forgiveness is to the soul what food is to the body. I submit to you that most of the major spiritual problems we have today 
are in one form or another connected to the fundamental issue of forgiveness. I mean, think about it. When we have a problem properly relating to God or others or to life itself, it's usually because one of two reasons. First, because of guilt, the expression of our need to receive forgiveness, or second, because of bitterness, the expression of our need to extend forgiveness. Forgiveness is to the soul what bread is to the body. Our bodies starve when we don't eat, and our souls starve when we don't receive and extend forgiveness. Indeed, our daily bread does nothing but feed us as lamb for the slaughter if our sins are not pardoned. And the Greek word translated forgive here, aphiemi, simply means to send away. This is what forgiveness does. It sends away guilt and bitterness. And for citizens of the kingdom of heaven, forgiveness is both essential and beneficial. We pray for daily forgiveness, just like we pray for our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we are forgiven our debtors. The point of this petition is illustrated perfectly in the parable of the unforgiving servant that is recorded in Matthew 18, 23 through 35. As a certain king reviewed his servant's stewardship, a servant was brought before him who owed him millions of dollars. And so the king ordered the man, along with his wife and children and possessions, to be auctioned off at the slave market. The poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged for mercy. And the king forgave him and released him from the debt. But no sooner was he out of the room, he came upon a fellow servant that owed him just 10 bucks. And he grabbed old boy by the throat and demanded, pay up now, you bum. And the fellow servant begged for mercy. But the forgiven servant would not have it. He had him put in jail until the debt was paid. But when the other servants saw this, they were outraged, and they reported it to the king. And so the king summoned the man and said, you evil slob, I forgive you your entire debt when you beg for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who also asked for mercy? And then the king puts that servant in jail to be tortured until he could pay back the debt, which was never. Now, notice three key facts about this story. First, the servant had a debt to the king that he could never, ever repay. Second, the servant had his debt freely and graciously forgiven by the king. And then third, the servant had to learn the hard way that the forgiveness you receive is tied to the forgiveness you extend. Now, those three facts illustrate the principle that Jesus is trying to get across in this fifth petition of the model prayer. They are the fundamental dynamics of Christian reconciliation. And I want us to take a closer look at them. Let me give it to you right off the bat before you check out on me. First, you've got to acknowledge the need for forgiveness. Second, you have to appropriate the gift of forgiveness. And third, you need to accept the condition of forgiveness. The first one, acknowledge the need for forgiveness. They said that John Wesley was talking to a man who proudly commented, I never forgive. 
To which Mr. Wesley replied, then, sir, I hope that you never sin. The first reason why we as Christians are forgiving people is because we recognize that we are people who always are in need of forgiveness. Proverbs 29 says, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from sin? The answer, none of us. We're all sinners. We have iniquity. We commit transgressions. F.F. Bruce said it well. There is something in man, even regenerate man, which objects to God and seeks to be independent of him. So first and foremost, we pray this petition to help us remember that we are in need of God's grace, of God's mercy, and of God's love. And I don't think there's a better picture of sin than the one given in this petition. It says we have debts. Sin is a debt. We are debtors to God. Because God created us and sustains us, we are ultimately accountable to God. And because God is holy, he demands total, complete, and perfect obedience from us. But whenever we disobey God, we put ourselves in debt to him. Romans 6.23 teaches us that the wages of sin is death. Sin is a costly debt that keeps accumulating painful interest. And friends, where can you hide when you owe heaven's bank? What court can grant you bankruptcy protection from heaven's bank? We are debt-ridden sinners who must come to God with the humility of a beggar, not the haughtiness of a banker. We deal with God by throwing ourselves on his mercy, pleading for his amazing grace, and hoping for his steadfast love. We approach God in prayer saying, forgive us our debts. Note something here, though, that this model prayer is taught to the disciples of Jesus. This is not a petition that lost people can make. This prayer is for the saints. But how come? Why do Christians, saved by grace, born again, and justified, still need to be forgiven? Know this, there are two types of forgiveness that God extends, judicial and parental. Judicial forgiveness is the once-for-all forgiveness of our sins that God graciously bestows upon those who put their trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, parental forgiveness is the regular forgiveness of our sins that God graciously bestows upon those who've already put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Judicial forgiveness is about salvation. Parental forgiveness maintains our intimate fellowship with God. Because before we are saved, God is our judge. And we must seek his forgiveness by and through Jesus Christ so that we are not eternally condemned. But once we are saved, God becomes our heavenly father. And yet we must still seek his forgiveness so that we may live in his favor. We pray, forgive us our debt, not as criminals who need to meet God, but as children who need to stay on speaking terms with their heavenly father. We need judicial forgiveness only once. We need parental forgiveness continuously. And so we pray, 
Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, second, we need to appropriate the gift of forgiveness. Notice that this petition doesn't say, teach us to forgive others so that we might be forgiven. This would leave us in control. You know, from our great storehouse of righteousness, we could reach out in love to those who have injured us or wronged us, but it doesn't work that way. We are taught to ask to be forgiven first, and that takes us out of control. It means that we are suddenly at the mercy of someone else's account of our lives rather than our own. And thus, our forgiveness of others begins as a response to our being forgiven. It is not an act of generosity toward a fellow human being who has offended us. It is an act of gratitude toward our forgiving God. Because if we control the forgiveness we receive, then we have a right to control the forgiveness we extend. But if we are to forgive and love one another the way Christ commands us, we must first be recipients of God's grace. We must first appropriate the gift of forgiveness. Now, this petition doesn't say anything to us about forgiving ourselves. That's a popular concept these days, even in the church. There are actually professing Christians who would dare say, I believe God has forgiven me. Now I just have to forgive myself. That is absolute and utter nonsense. What did I say? It's absolute and utter nonsense. The Bible doesn't tell us that we should forgive ourselves. Of the more than 125 direct references to forgiveness in Scripture, the idea of forgiving ourselves is not mentioned once. We cannot forgive ourselves. That is not a Christian way of thinking. To forgive yourself will make you the God that you offended. And the thought of it is near blasphemous. It's another attempt of the enemy of our soul to get us to depend on our own righteousness rather than the grace of God. True forgiveness is rooted in God. Forgiveness is a gift from God. And so we are taught to pray. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors in order to help us appropriate the gift of forgiveness. 1 John 1, 5 through 10, give two options for how to deal with the reality of our sin. You can lie. You can lie to God. You can lie to others. You can lie to yourself about your sins. Or you can be honest with God about your sins. And 1 John 1.19 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 2.1 tells us why God is faithful and just to forgive. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because indeed, it is through Christ we are forgiven. It is through Christ we are reconciled with God. It is through Christ, we are adopted into God's family. It is through Christ that we are born again. It is through Christ that we are declared righteous. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Friends, Jesus paid it all. All to him, I hope. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow.
then third and finally, we need to accept the condition of forgiveness. This petition contains a confession. We are debtors, right? And then it makes a petition, forgive us our debts. But it also sets a condition. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. To paraphrase, the text seems to be saying, Father, I need your forgiveness, but I request that you treat me the way I treat those who have wronged me. Are you all tracking with me? You're asking God to give you what you give others. Grant me the same peace I grant others. Let me enjoy whatever tolerance I offer others. Did you get that? God will treat you the way you treat others. It's as if God sends you to a market for your neighbor's groceries and says, whatever you get your neighbor, get also for yourself. For whatever you give him is what you are going to receive. We pray to the Father to pardon us. But this petition is inseparable from our willingness to forgive. Look, I know that there are debtors in your life, and I do not minimize that. Your parents should have been more loving. Your children should have been more appreciative. Your spouse should have been more faithful. Your friends should have been more supportive. Your church should have been more caring and sensitive and attentive. You have debtors. I know the plural term in the petition says we have debts, and we also have debtors. Friends, you got to let them off the hook. That is, you must forgive them unless you do not expect to need forgiveness yourself. Because when you come to God with an unhealed breach or an unsettled quarrel, you're really just asking God, not to forgive you. You must be able to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is so serious about this issue of forgiveness that he makes it the only petition that he explains further. In verses 14 and 15 of the same chapter, Jesus enforces the seriousness of this with a stern warning. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And why is this, why is forgiveness that we receive equated with the forgiveness that we extend? Well, forgiveness is like a coin. It is a single unit with two sides. The attitude that enables us to accept forgiveness is the same attitude that compels us to extend it. If we're unable to forgive others, our hardness will prevent us from accepting God's forgiveness. Truth be told, it's like being in love. You become vulnerable to that which you truly love. When you give your heart to someone, you open yourself up to both the joy and pain that love brings. You can't say, I just want the joy that love brings, but I don't want any of the pain. That's not love. When you give someone your heart, you put yourself in a position where that person can bring you both incredible joy 
and excruciating pain. It's the same way with forgiveness. You can hold a grudge and nurse your hurts and vow to never forgive those who have wronged you. But when you close your heart to that forgiveness so that forgiveness is not extended, your heart is closed off from receiving forgiveness. But if your heart is going to be open to receive the forgiveness of God, your heart must also be open to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged you. Remember Joseph's brothers, they plotted, right? They feared that Joseph would take vengeance on them after their father had died. But in Genesis 50 verse 19, Joseph raised a question. Am I in the place of God? Think about that. You must remember that you are not God. You must forgive. Let your debtors off the hook and leave them in the hands of God. Now, I'm not saying that this is all easy and you just forgive and forget. Now, some things you can't forget and some things you shouldn't forget. But if you forgive and give it to God, God is able to take the pain out of your memories. There's definitely a place in our faith for confrontation and truth-telling and rebuke. But at the same time, we are called to be forgiving, long-suffering, and gracious. We're to hate the sin, but we're to love the sinner. Just a quick aside, that's a limited maxim, right? It only goes so far, but we're not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. But so I, I read that there was a, a time in the life of C.S. Lewis when he deemed that concept of hate the sin, love the sinner as ludicrous and impossible. He couldn't see how you could hate sin without that hatred extending to the person who committed the sin. He couldn't understand until he looked in the mirror. He noted that he had absolutely no problem loving himself. <laughs> in spite of the hateful things he had done. Isn't that like most of us? We minimize our own sins, our own faults and mistakes. But we exalt the sins and faults and mistakes of others. Friends, we need to learn how to be more appalled by our own sins and to be more patient with the sins of others. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Bible doesn't say that your debtors have to admit that they are wrong or say they're sorry in order for you to forgive them. They need to do that for there to be reconciliation but not for there to be forgiveness. All you need to do in order to forgive is to know that God has forgiven you in and through Christ Jesus. And because of that, there is therefore now no condemnation, and you have been set free from the guilt of your sin because the Son has set you free. He calls you now to be free from the bitterness of unforgiveness. Today, right now, this very moment, walk in the freedom of forgiveness for those 
who have been forgiven so great a debt must also forgive their debtors. Let us pray. O Lord, our Father, we need your help this morning. It hurts so much and so deep wounds go. We don't know how we can forgive. And so we're pleading with you, God, for the grace, for the power, for the supernatural enablement to forgive, Lord. For it is not by our power or by our might, but it is by your spirit, says the And so, Holy Spirit, we're asking, we're pleading for your help to forgive, knowing that we have been forgiven so much and that we also need to extend that grace of forgiveness which we have received. Lord, help us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.